Well, good morning, Fellowship Nashville. My name is Mark, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And even though we couldn't gather in person, I'm excited to continue our new sermon series through the Old Testament short story of Ruth, um, to which we've given the subtitle uh, From Ruin to Redemption. And uh, since many of you weren't able to join us last week, I'd like to begin with a brief synopsis of what we covered in the first five verses of this um, Old Testament short story, the first five verses of Ruth, before we dive into the rest of chapter one together this morning. Um, the story of Ruth is set in Israel in 1100 BC and begins with a troubling circumstance. Um, we have uh, a family of four um, that are um, living in Bethlehem, which is a south, a town just south of, of Jerusalem, and they um, are, are experiencing a famine in the land. And we need, when we hear famine, we need to um, picture the most dire situation in a third world country. Um, there's a famine in the land in their hometown of Bethlehem. Um, and they have no bread, which is rather ironic because Bethlehem means house of bread. So there is, the house of bread has no bread. And in our time together last week, we made one observation and one question. The observation was this. Our human instincts amid troubling circumstances are often misguided. Our, um, our human instincts amid troubling circumstances are often misguided. And we see, that, see this right at the beginning of the book of Ruth. Instead of calling out to God for help and deliverance in this famine, Elimelech, the patriarch of this family of four, takes them and runs away from the promised land, away from the, the, the place of God's protection and his provision, and, and they run to the land of Moab, at which point you would have heard an audible gasp uh, from the original audience. Uh, Moab is an idolatrous, immoral place. In other words, Elimelech turned his back on God and um, took matters into his own hands and led his family to settle into the ungodly land of Israel's enemies. And so um, right here at the beginning of the narrative, we see this observation at play that, that human instincts amid troubling circumstances are often misguided. The same suffering that can turn us toward God, more often than not, based on the natural bent of our hearts, turns us away from God instead. And, and this is happening in these first five verses of the book of Ruth. And when, what happens next in the story um, is one tragedy after another, after another, like um, cold, hard dominoes just falling, hitting each other and falling one after the other. First, Elimelech dies in verse three, and um, that's tragic, but at least Naomi still has her two sons to protect her, to provide for her. Um, then in verse four, we read that these two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Again, you need to cue an audible gasp from the original audience here. Um, intermarriage with Moabite women would have been considered another further step away from God. The trajectory that Elimelech set for his family is, is now being followed by his two sons. Then 10 years pass with no offspring from these marriages. That means there's barrenness, which is a bad thing in the ancient world. And then in verse five, the, the two sons also die. Um, and this leaves Naomi in a very, very precarious position in her time and culture. In her agrarian patriarchal society, she's utterly destitute. Um, there was no life insurance, no social security. Women had very few legal rights. 
they were not allowed to inherit property without husbands or sons. Naomi has no security, no future, no hope, and she's living outside the promised land in God-forsaken Moab. And the one question um, that hits us uh, smack in the face just after five short verses of this uh, book is this, and we looked at this last week, if we turn our backs on God, does he turn his back on us? If we turn our backs on God, does he turn his backs back on us? What's going to happen to Naomi? Will she come home? Does, does, does God still care about her? Will he be merciful to her? Is there a limit to God's covenant love? Can you wander so far away from God that you reach a point of no return where he totally abandons you? Well, we're about to find out. And as we cover the rest of chapter one today, we're going to make one additional observation and ask one additional question, just like last week. And that, again, is going to be our simple outline uh, for this morning. So let's jump back into the story, beginning with verse six of, of chapter one. Then she, that's Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And wherever, wherever you see that the word Lord capitalized in our English translations, that's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. And right here in this verse is the first time that his name appears in the narrative. The Lord, Yahweh, had visited his people and given them food. So utterly destitute in Moab, Naomi hears some good news from back home in the promised land. God has shown covenant faithfulness to his people once more and given them food. There's bread in the house of bread. Um, God has demonstrated his loyal, faithful, covenant love to his people. Now, we don't have a word in English that fully describes this kind of love. And that's why I had to use the phrase loyal, faithful, covenant love. But the Hebrew word of this kind of love, for this kind of love, is the word chesed, chesed. Um, since you're all on mute, go ahead and say the word out loud, chesed. You've got to kind of use the back of your throat for, for it, almost like you're getting ready to um, hock up some phlegm. I know, kind of gross, but chesed. Um, now, trust me, its meaning is much more pleasant than it sounds. Hesed, or chesed, is the combination of two concepts in the English language, love and loyalty. It's often translated loving kindness or covenant faithfulness. It's the love not just of the emotions, but of the will, a choosing, devoted, committed type of love a commitment to the, the well-being of the object of one's affections come hell or high water. Uh, this is the kind of love that God has for his people. And, and he says of himself in Exodus 34, 6, using his covenant name Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, notice the capital letters there, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's chesed and faithfulness. You know, in a popular children's book called the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, the author Sally Lloyd-Jones paraphrases the concept of chesed in this way, and I just love it. It's the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. I, I think that's just a great way to sum up the word chesed. God has now demonstrated his chesed to his people in Israel. He's given them food. The famine is over. Naomi hears a rumor about it while she's in Moab and, and thinks to herself, well, maybe they'll be willing to share. And so after over 10 years away from the promised land, Naomi decides to head for home. 
along with her two widowed Moabite daughters-in-law who are now culturally under her authority and obligated to stay with her and care for her. Verse seven. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So we see here that Naomi has decided to head home, but she seems to be having second thoughts about taking her daughters-in-law on this journey. And, and we see here that she releases them from their cultural obligation to care for her. Go return to your mother's houses, she says. Go back to your Moabite families. She's encouraging them. Now, now this may be interpreted, um, and it is interpreted by many, as a very kind-hearted gesture, an unselfish gesture on Naomi's part. That may be the case, but I'm a little bit skeptical. <laughs> what, we, what we've got to understand is that returning to Israel um, with two Moabite women was probably not really what Naomi wanted to do. Based on the Hebrew cultural biases against Moabites, going back to Israel with them in tow would have likely been perceived by Naomi as more of a liability than an asset. And when Naomi evokes the covenant name of God, may the Lord, may Yahweh deal kindly with you. Um, this is our, our Hebrew word chesed here. May God show his loyal love to you, his hesed to you. Again, this sounds like kindness from Naomi, but, but from what we're about to find out about Naomi and her, her attitude towards God at this point in the story, this blessing from Naomi towards her daughters-in-law should probably be read with a sarcastic tone. Something like this. May Yahweh show hesed to you. He certainly hasn't shown it to me, but may he show it to you. <laughs> Good luck, ladies. That, that's really the tone that we probably should hear from um, the, the Hebrew text here. And, and this will become evident as we go along. And then she starts what appears to be another blessing in verse nine. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Now, this is one of the rare cases where I believe that our English translation has failed us miserably. <laughs> the Hebrew in this verse is interrupted, it's choppy, and our English standard version has tried to make sense of it by smoothing it over, making Naomi sound really nice, but that's not what's going on in the, the original language. What's actually happening in the original Hebrew text of this Old Testament short story is that Naomi starts to bless Orpah and Ruth by once again evoking the name of, of her God, Yahweh, but then decides mid-sentence to dispense with her trumped up piety and shift to pragmatic, blunt pragmatism instead. One commentator more accurately translates verse nine in this way. May Yahweh give you, oh, forget it. Go find rest, each of you, in the household of a new husband. Naomi aborts the blessing mid-sentence, drops the pretense of pious language in favor of practical advice. Stop hanging out with me, ladies. <laughs> Go get yourselves new husbands. In other words, I wouldn't bank on my God, Yahweh, to take care of you. You better go get yourself a new man to do that. And, and we'll see that, that, or, or that um, Naomi continues with this blunt pragmatism throughout the rest of the conversation. But Orpah and Ruth push back a little bit on this pragmatic advice in verse 10. 
Um, obviously, they had some affection for Naomi, verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Time out. Okay, that sounds really weird, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but what Naomi is doing here is making reference to a custom of that day called leveret marriage. We talked about it last week. It's the social security of the ancient world in, in that time and place. If your husband died, it was your husband's brother's responsibility to marry you and provide for you and, and take care of you, protect you. But the problem is that Naomi doesn't have any more sons for Orpah and Ruth to marry. She doesn't even have a husband and she's not even, and she's past her childbearing years. So even if Naomi were to miraculous, miraculously, instantaneously get a new husband, uh, miraculously get pregnant, miraculously have twin boys, it's going to take way too long for them to grow up and be of marrying age and provide for and protect Ruth and Orpah. That's what Naomi is emphatically uh, pointing out. And we see that here in verse 12. Verse, verse 12, turn back my daughters, go your way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The end of verse 13 here reads a bit awkwardly in our English translation, and I think once more is a poor translation of what's happening in the Hebrew text. I think the New English translation gets it better, and let me read that for you. No, my daughters, you must not return with me, for my intense suffering, literally my bitterness, is too much for you to bear, for the Lord is afflicting me. Now, I want you to recall the question that we asked in our, our, in our time together last week. Do you remember it? If we turn our backs on God, does he turn his backs? Does, does he turn his back on us? If we turn our backs on God, does he turn his back on us? Based on what Naomi has just said, the Lord is afflicting me. How do you, how do you think Naomi would have answered that question at this point in the narrative? Yes, God does turn his back on us. That's how Naomi would have answered it. Naomi is interpreting her circumstances as God's sovereign judgment upon her for running to Moab. She's interpreting her destitution as, as the firm and final punishment from God. She believes that God has turned his back on her, that, that he has totally abandoned her. She believes that sin from her past has totally dispelled any hope for her future. Naomi's bitter here. She's cynical. She's basically telling her daughters-in-law, Orpah, Ruth, you, you don't want to go back to Judah with me. Trust me. God has turned his back on me. He's afflicting me. You're better off going back and worshiping your Moabite gods with your Moabite families. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. That means she said goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. So Naomi succeeds in convincing Orpah to turn back, but she's having a harder time shaking off Ruth. Orpah does what makes sense, what, what's practical. She kisses Naomi goodbye, goes back to her Moabite family. We can't really blame her. 
but Ruth clings to Naomi like a static-filled dryer sheet here. And so Naomi tries to use Orpah's actions as leverage to also get rid of Ruth. Verse 15, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Come on, Ruth, Orpah's doing the sensible thing here. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And what comes next is one of the most beautiful and heartfelt outpourings of love, devotion, and commitment that we have in all of the Bible. And it comes from a very unexpected place, the lips of this Moabite widow named Ruth. Middle of verse 16. Let's pick it back up. Ruth says this, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Wow, just wow. It's almost as if you can hear orchestra music swelling up in the background here, right? The words of commitment from Ruth to Naomi are beautiful. They're, they're sincere, they're heartfelt. They're from the depth of her being. And you know what's interesting? I've heard these words, these verses used in modern day wedding vows. And um, it certainly is an incredible picture of commitment, no question. <laughs> Perhaps you've even heard them in a, in a wedding, but um, think about it. This is a daughter-in-law speaking to who? A mother-in-law. Let me tell you what I've never heard in a wedding. <laughs> These kinds of words spoken to in-laws. That just doesn't happen, right? How profound is this? Think about it. Ruth is leaving behind her land, her family, her religion, her gods, her security, all that's familiar to her. And, and she is committing her future to this completely um, destitute widow, this, this um, childless woman named Naomi. She's committing her future to perpetual widowhood, her own future to perpetual widowhood and childness, childlessness also for Naomi's sake. That's what she's doing. This, my picture is a, this, my friends, is a human picture of divine covenant keeping loyal love, of never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, and forever love. This is the epitome of chesed being demonstrated directly to Naomi. Let that sink in. Hold that thought. Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Naomi doesn't say, we got to pay attention to what Naomi doesn't say here. She doesn't say, oh, thank you, Ruth. She doesn't start crying um, with gratitude. No, the text simply states coldly that Naomi said no more. She goes quiet. That's never good in the Hebrew narrative. The rest of the journey to Bethlehem is silent. There's an awkwardness here. We don't know what's going on inside Naomi's mind or inside her heart. We don't know if Naomi valued Ruth's loyal love, but it's about to become evident. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem and, and it creates quite a commotion, probably for several different reasons. First of all, there's a Moabite walking in the town. 
That didn't happen every day and would not have been a welcome sight. Secondly, this occurs right before harvest time, right as harvest time is beginning, when food supply is at its lowest, um, at, a tail, at the tail end of a fam period of famine. And, and the, the townspeople are likely thinking, oh great, <laughs> two more mouths to feed here. And, and thirdly, although it's been over 10 years, uh, we read that uh, the townswomen recognize Naomi. Is that Naomi? Where's Elimelech? Where are her boys? Now, before we go on in the narrative, I want you to put yourself in the sandals of Naomi right here for a moment. As you're returning from Moab, walking into Bethlehem, this is the place. These are the people that your family turned their backs on years before. And you went off to a pagan land where you lived among idolatrous Moabites, and now you're coming back, utterly destitute. Now there's food, you're coming back. And not only is it hard enough to come back to the land and to the people that you abandoned, but you're coming back without a husband, without your sons. The only thing you have is a Moabite daughter-in-law with you. Can you feel the tension? Middle verse 19. And the women, the townswomen said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You know, the women of Bethlehem that approach Naomi here get a mouthful that they weren't expecting. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi literally means kindness. And it's a shortened form of, of a longer name that means the kindness of Yahweh, the kindness of of Yahweh. Don't call me the kindness of Yahweh, Naomi uh, snaps back. Call me Mara. Mara is the Hebrew uh, word uh, for bitterness. Call me bitterness, not the kindness of Yahweh, because God has been anything but kind to me. All he's been is bitter to me. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So when people come up to her and say, Naomi, the kindness of Yahweh, she snaps back at them and says, not at all. I'm a different person now. I left here full with everything I needed, everyone I loved, and I come back here totally empty with nothing. And you can imagine the tension in the air with the people listening to this. But now I want you to put yourself in Ruth's sandals. You knew there would be prejudice against you as a Moabite, leaving your homeland, walking into Judah. You can tell that the townspeople are giving you sideways glances and whispering among themselves. You knew this was coming, but now you're feeling it. You're feeling the stark reality of the prejudice. Put yourself in, in Ruth's shoes here as Naomi says this. I left here full, but I've come back here totally empty with nothing. And the crowd that's gathered around hears Naomi say that she has absolutely nothing. And then they turn and they look at you. And all you can do is look down less than nothing. You are a picture of the misfortune of the Almighty. You are a symbol of the Lord's affliction 
as you stand beside Naomi. Ouch. You've just pledged your undying love and devotion to Naomi. You've demonstrated chesed to her. And this is how you're viewed, less than nothing. And that leads us to our one observation today. And that's this. Amid pain and grief, it's easy to miss the often subtle and surprising demonstrations of the faithful love, chesed, of God. Amid pain and grief, it's easy to miss the often subtle and surprising demonstrations of the faithful love, the hesed of God. It might come from where we least expect it. Naomi is looking around her and saying, I'm empty. I have nothing. And, and on the surface of things in her time and culture, she's right. She does have nothing. But little does she know that standing right next to her, Right beside her in a Moabite daughter-in-law is the very fullness of God. And in this moment, when Naomi thinks that God has completely forsaken her and couldn't be further from her, in that moment, God is actually laying the foundation for the greatest demonstration of his love and faithfulness to Naomi personally, not, not only to Naomi personally, but to all of humanity in and through Ruth. But I don't want for us to get too ahead of ourselves here in, in the story. I, I want us to sit in the tension of this Old Testament narrative, like the original audience would have. And, and I also don't want us to be too hard on Naomi here. Um, she doesn't have the, the hindsight that, that we have on this moment. And I want you to, to relate with her. Think about what she's been through. Famine, displacement, death, despair, bitterness, shame. Perhaps some of you today are right where Naomi is at um, in her pain, feeling as though God is far from you. Like Naomi, you've experienced famine, not necessarily like we find here in the book of Ruth, but famine of perhaps of a different sort. You long for something you don't have, long for something that you think you need, and yet you don't find yourself receiving it from God. Maybe it's a re relationship. Maybe it's a job. Like Naomi, you've been displaced. Maybe your life has been upended. And you've just had to move away from family and friends. You feel lonely, forgotten, unwanted. Maybe you find yourself in a new place emotionally or relationally. A relationship with a mom or dad, husband or wife, a child that once was one way uh, has now dramatically changed. And you're thinking, how did this happen? How did I end up here? I feel displaced. Like Naomi, death is knocked on your front door. You've lost a loved one and the pain won't seem to go away. Maybe it was a short time ago when death struck, or maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe it was expected, maybe it was unexpected. But the ache in your heart won't go away. You feel the grief of it every day. Like Naomi, you're in despair. You're not really sure you want to continue in your current circumstances. You feel trapped, like there's no way out and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You feel lost in a deep fog of depression. Perhaps the despair is from a troubling health diagnosis. You don't know how to navigate it. Like Naomi, you've experienced bitterness and barrenness. You, you have this nagging pain of wanting and desiring a child and a family, but it's just not happening. You've been asking God, along with your spouse, God, why would you give us this strong desire and not provide for us? This doesn't make sense. 
like Naomi, maybe you feel shame today. You feel as though sin from your past has dispelled any hope for your future. It seems as though God has turned his back on you. He feels cold, distant, far away, and you're bitter about it. Can you relate with Naomi on any of these things? I know I certainly can. And so here's our one question for this morning. Our one question, is it possible that God ordained sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph? Is it possible that God ordained sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph? When God seems far away from us, my friends, could he be preparing us and preparing to show himself faithful to us? Is that really the way God works? Is God's love for us really a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love? Is he in the business of bringing us from despair to delight, from hurt to hope, from ruin to redemption? Let's close with reading the last verse of this chapter together. Verse 22. So, so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. It's harvest time. There's a glimmer of hope. Is it possible that God ordains sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph? Well, You'll have to join us next week to find out. <laughs> find out what happens next in this Old Testament short story. And Lord willing, we'll all be in person at Waverly Belmont Elementary School. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, um, the bluntness of it. It doesn't candy coat things, even though some of our English translations try to do so. It... it helps us to live in the tension of, of life in a broken world. And Father, um, many of us feel broken right now. We feel the displacement, the barrenness, the loneliness, the despair, the depression, um, the hard parts of, of living in a broken world. Father, I pray that you would speak to us in, in those places. As we see that this story is part of a greater narrative, a meta-narrative, in which we too are part, where we have seen now in hindsight, you turn the sorrowful tragedy of a cross into the surprising triumph of our salvation. Lord, we know and we trust that this is indeed the way that you love us and the way that you work with your never stopping, never giving up, always and forever, love. Father, as we close in song now, I pray that um, you would remind us of your covenant faithfulness, of your goodness to us in the midst of all of the brokenness that we experience in a fallen world. Thank you again for your word this morning. I look forward to con continuing to teach it and to unpack this narrative and what you have to teach us through that, Lord. Amen.